Violence intensifies in Syria, but is it any closer to ending? A mother tells us how she's dealing with losing her son in Afghanistan. I thought the only thing I can do is write. I was very distressed, so I started writing that day, the first chapter of the book about uh, that weekend in Selyuk. And do women make better spies? The International Relief Agency, Médecins Sans Frontières, says tens of thousands of people are trapped in the city of Deir Ezzor in eastern Syria because of intense fighting and aerial bombardment. It's a deteriorating situation with President Assad's regime now being accused by the US of firing Scud missiles at opposition forces and NATO confirming more than half a dozen short-range ballistic missiles have been fired from Damascus into northern Syria. Victoria Newland is from the US State Department. As the regime becomes more and more desperate, we see it resorting to more vicious weapons. More than 100 countries have now recognised the new Syrian opposition coalition and Victoria Newland believes the government backlash is becoming increasingly violent and unpredictable. We're seeing use of a kind of a barrel bomb, which is an incendiary bomb that's sort of a, a napalm-like thing and is completely indiscriminate in terms of civilians and indicative of the regime's desperation and the regime's brutality. The Russian news agency TASS is reporting that the country's deputy foreign minister has said President Assad is increasingly losing control of the country. Mikhail Bogdanov says the opposition may win the bloody civil war, which, given that Russia is Assad's main ally, carries some weight. Well, as usual, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lea. Christopher, this war has been going on for months. Why has Assad's regime only decided to use the Scud missiles now? Well, they've used a couple before. Um, but that was really working up uh, a 7-8 battalion, which is one of the Scud missile battalions. Um, you get into a position in a war that they're in that they have few places to operate from and they have to go for targets that need to be frankly rubbled. And that's how you trap, for example, large groups of people, which Médecin Frontier is, is actually saying, that are trapped. And that's how you do it and you isolate and if you can isolate, you concentrate the whole barrage onto different groups of rebels. Very effective. Was it the fear of the use of these Scud missiles that prompted uh, NATO putting Patriot missiles or agreeing to put Patriot missiles along Turkey's border? Uh, fascinating. Now, what it was, the Americans uh, are doing a satellite monitoring on this, right? And also they got guys on the ground. And they were looking at two battalions. One was 5-1 battalion. The other one was talking about earlier was 7-8 battalion. 7-8 uh, and 5-1 battalions are Scud missile battalions. They got from the satellites the idea that uh, more troops have been sent in, more support elements have been sent in to these battalion uh, uh, stations, which meant they were getting the Scuds ready for operations. So they, got, they knew they this was about had to, to happen. Go, yeah, they did. And the Americans wanted to put in uh, Patriot missiles which are defences against Scud missiles, just as they did with the, with the war in 91 in the Gulf. But they said they wanted to put him into Turkey. 
Turkey said to them, listen, we can't actually do that, just stick them in there, because our own people, people elected us, will get grumpy about the Americans st- sticking missiles in. And so the, uh, the Americans said, well, OK, we won't do it. it may not be, they may not be even our missiles. But you ask for them through NATO. NATO will come to us and, and also to the Dutch and we'll have them in, you know, in a flash of camel dung, we'll have them in that quickly. Do we uh, know when they're actually going to be there? Because are they actually in position yet and ready to be used No, they're in not defense? in position. They're not in, they're not all, part elements of them are in position. Uh, they should be, I mean, it doesn't take, it only takes days to get them uh, set up and uh, centrifuge and, and ready to fire. But the point is, firing against what? They're not going to move those patriots into, let's say, Syrian towns to defend Syrian towns. They're there to defend Turkey, which is one of the most overwhelmed um, allies in the whole region. What do you make of what Russia is now saying, saying that uh, Assad may actually well lose? OK, Bogdanov is, is, is a junior minister, and he's said this, and it's either a plant or whatever. But the point is, it's the first time we've heard this. Wait till you hear it from Why me. are they saying it? Um, because, is it because they believe it, or <laughs> is because it because it, they have something to get out of well, saying I mean, the, 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 Well, the first thing, it, it, to my mind, it's, a, it's, it's going to uh, pedant an announcement or an agreement within the Security Council. Uh, the Security Council will be meeting next week in the United Nations. They were talking about it. Up until now, Russia has kept its distance from these agreements, you know, these condemnations. It may now start to sort of change its mind about it. And don't forget, Russia, to some extent China, the only allies that the Syrians have got. Christopher, do you believe the end is coming for Assad? Uh, I don't believe I know. I don't believe anybody actually knows. But evidence is stacked against him at the moment. Uh, the worst thing that's going to happen, I think, is worst, uh, was what we're seeing, is the increased use of uh, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, who is the, uh, the Islamist groups, the, if you like, the Al-Qaeda groups. And you can tell that yesterday, Wednesday, um, there was, a body, uh, there was a, an attack... Uh, by a um, suicide bomber on the interior minister in Damascus. Suicide bombers. Only the Islamist groups use those. That is the sign that there's nothing to stop stop anybody going anywhere against the regime. Look for two signs. One is 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 Assad now mixing it in the villages of Alawite villages, and also look to see where Mrs. Assad is now. There's a lot of stories going around that she is in Moscow. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Tensions are high in Northern Ireland after a week of rioting in the province over the decision not to fly the Union flag from Belfast City Hall every day. Last week, city councillors voted to fly the flag on just 20 designated days, a decision which has angered loyalists and led to violent protests. Today, a 34-year-old man was remanded in custody, charged with threatening to kill Northern Ireland's first minister, Peter Robinson. Northern Ireland journalist Alan Murray joins us now from Belfast. Hello, Alan. Hello. Um, Peter Robinson's not the only only person to have received a death threat over this, is he? No, uh, his fellow um, party members, uh, Geoffrey Donaldson, the MP for Lagan Valley, and Edwin Pooch, the Minister for Health and the Stormont Executive, were both visited by police, although Geoffrey Donaldson wasn't present when the visit took place, but their homes were visited and uh, their families advised that there was a security risk to them, a threat that they would be shot and that their families would be shot if they did not leave the country. Why is the flying or the not flying of this flag such a big deal? 
it's very symbol symbolic to the unionist community. They basically see it as the symbol of their Britishness, the the identity of them with Britain, and it's one of those things that you look at it and say, why do they get so fervent about this? And it's very difficult to explain to the outsider, but they consider themselves as British. They would maybe say they're akin to the Falkland Islanders, surrounded but nevertheless defiantly British. This uh, flying of the flag on 20 days of the year was a compromise suggested by the Alliance Party. Um, Nationalists want to get rid of the flag altogether. Um, What can you tell us about this Alliance Party? What do they stand for exactly? Well, it's the middle of the road party. It it prides itself on saying it attracts people from both the... um, traditions here, the main traditions, the unionist tradition, the nationalist tradition, they thought that if they proposed an amendment uh, to the Sinn Féin SDLP motion, which was to remove the flag completely, 365 days a year, that that motion would see them in a favourable light and would preserve the flying of the flag for the 17 to 20 days of the year that is now envisaged. However, the, the, the perception within the unionist community of the Alliance Party's action was that they were siding with Sinn Féin and the SDLP and that they too wanted the flag removed, which meant that they basically got it in the neck from the unionist protesters on the streets. Just tell us a little bit about, about the people involved in this violence. Um, according to the, looking at the television pictures, they're, they're very young. Could there be other reasons for the trouble, for example, youth unemployment and just general dissatisfaction? Well, one of the things you hear when you talk to unionists or, or loyalist uh, youth people in these areas is that these people have no jobs. They have poor education. The education system has failed them. Therefore, they feel disadvantaged and almost disadvantaged. Now, they went out on the streets to do these protests. Some say, and the police have said, that paramilitary organisations are also involved in egging on the protests. Um, We've had these protests since the night of the flag decision, which was Monday of the week previously, and we don't know when they will end. Mercifully, last night they were not violent, but what people have said is really, instead of being out on the streets, you need to get registered to vote. Get on the electoral register and then you can vote to remove some of, as the unions have put it, the alliance councillors in Belfast City Council who supported this. Just to talk about another big story in Northern Ireland this week, uh, the report released yesterday into the murder of the Belfast solicitor Pat Finucane. Uh, the Prime Minister described the level of state collusion uncovered by this report as shocking. The report concluded, though, no overarching state conspiracy. What's been the reaction there? Well, there's been reaction from the nationalist politicians to say, well, we need uh, the the full public inquiry that the Pat Finucane family is demanding. However, the unionist politicians are saying, no, we won't get to the truth. You don't get to the truth with these inquiries. Bloody Sunday inquiry costing £200 million proved that. So they're opposed to it. And we are in this stalemate situation where the Prime Minister absolutely adamantly is saying there will be no public inquiry, whereas the Labour leader, Ed Miliband, is saying there might be an inquiry or should be an inquiry, and the Finucane family are saying, well, we hope that Labour does fulfil that, that promise if they get into government again. Christopher Lee. Just thinking, one of the telling lines in this report, and it's, uh, well, it's, it's about 700 pages, isn't it? Um, it says an officer or officers of the RUC proposed... Uh, Finnegan is a target to loyalist killers. 
What this report does not tell us, two things. One, it doesn't tell us that any questions were asked of anybody, in other words, interrogations or whatever you like to call it. The second thing, it does, most importantly, it doesn't say who ordered that pointing of the fingers to the so-called uh, loyalists. Alan, do, do you think that will ever come out? I don't think it will. I mean, about the pointing of the fingers, there was, of course, a statement by the Conservative MP after a briefing in Belfast with the RUC in which he said in the House of Commons that he believed that some solicitors were unduly sympathetic to uh, the Republican ideals and Republicans. Uh, I think when you listen to David Cameron yesterday, he doesn't say it, but I got the impression what he was saying was this would take us, if we had a public inquiry, into the very bowel of the intelligence community in that era and some today as well. And I think what he's saying is I am not prepared and I have been told do not be prepared to expose this to the public, glare because you really are dealing with the sinews and you cannot really go there, Prime Minister. And I think that's what he's saying. We're not going to expose our system to this because it would be the most penetrating examination of the, the military intelligence, MI5 and special branch that was ever conducted. Alan Murray in Belfast. Thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, we hear about dealing with trauma from a woman whose son was killed by a Taliban bullet. And spying, is the female of the species more deadly than the male? Yesterday, North Korea successfully fired a long-range rocket which appears to have put a satellite into space. The United States and its allies are calling for a strong response to what they see as a disguised ballistic missile test. Even China, North Korea's only ally, has expressed regret. Earlier, I spoke to Aidan Foster Carter, an expert on Korea and an honorary senior research fellow at Leeds University. I asked him if he believed North Korea had put a weather satellite into space or was it something more sinister? Whether or not this is true, sorry, a bad pun, it's not either or. It is interesting that they have launched a satellite because uh, we're so used to them lying. They've claimed twice before to have put a satellite into space and nobody could see it. This time they clearly have. I, don't, I haven't seen it confirmed whether it's working or not. So there is a satellite, but of course that is not the only thing that's going on because a rocket is a rocket, to be technical, and this is dual use. I mean, in effect, what they've done, although obviously the trajectory is not the same, if you were firing a missile, then you do care where it lands. But broadly speaking, the launch vehicle is the same as it would be for an intercontinental ballistic missile. And that's why North Korea has been censured in the past by the UN Security Council, and indeed again now, for what is tantamount to a testing a missile, which they're not supposed to do. How big a step is it to put a missile on that rocket? Can it simply be done very quickly, or is it a long project? Um, there are various stages to it, and the technical side is not something that is my forte. The main thing that people are relieved about, as I understand it, the main difficulty for them, uh, it's obviously what they would put on the missile, so to speak, as well, miniaturising the nuclear weapons, which they also have. Of course, it's the combination of having... A new, tested a nuclear device and having these missiles that is the real worry if you put them together but there's no evidence that they're anywhere near miniaturizing a nuclear uh, reaction so that they could create create a weapon basically but as far as the missile goes i mean it's a mixed record only uh, eight months ago a similar rocket launch failed uh in the past they've had one as it were acknowledged long-range missile that failed after less than a minute and two others, which did travel quite a long distance, 
didn't put up the satellites. So that, this is over a 14-year period. So I don't want to be complacent about it, but I don't, they're not going to be, as you sometimes hear, you know, threatening Guam or Hawaii tomorrow. What do you think the North Koreans are hoping to achieve then? They've achieved an incredible amount um, domestically and externally. Kim Jong-un, the young successor, uh, only in power for less than a year. They want to mark the anniversary of his father Kim Jong-il's death, which is coming up in a few days. So this, this counts as a success in that sense. And externally, it, you know, it's, it's a poke in the eye for all the people they dislike. South Korea has got an election coming, so they rain on their parade. Although, ironically, it makes people vote conservative, which is probably not what they want. South Korea, incidentally, has its own space program, which was three times failed to get a rocket up, so the North is actually ahead, probably the only thing in which they are ahead, given that otherwise they're starving in a failed economy and so on. Japanese are annoyed, you know, the Americans will probably, already you're reading a lot of stuff saying Obama really didn't pay enough attention to North Korea in the first term, goodness knows he had other preoccupations, um, that he really must do this time. They love all this, you know, they bask in the attention, and um, so many things have been achieved, none of them good. Why do you think North Korea thinks it needs nuclear weapons? Who do you think they believe are their enemies? They tend to think the world is their enemy. Um, to be to be fair, um, back in the Korean War, which admittedly was 60 years ago, General MacArthur, before he was relieved of his command by President Truman, openly threatened to use them. The U.S. kept nuclear weapons in South Korea uh, until about 20 years ago. The North Koreans profess not to believe that they've ever actually been removed. And South Korea is, of course, under the U.S. nuclear shield. That said, of course, it's the usual tit for tat, and they are a bit paranoid about it. I mean, if they were ever seriously minded to go down steps of disarmament and reducing mutual tensions, the South Koreans would be only too happy. Aidan Foster Carter from Leeds University speaking to me earlier. Christopher, um, China's response in all of this is quite interesting, isn't it? Fascinating, isn't it? It's the, they said they regret what happened. This is the first time I've heard China say anything detrimental about their... their and why? Think about China... What countries surround China? We've India. got India, Pakistan, yeah, Korea. They're all, and Russia, of course, they're all nuclear countries. And you stick China, a, a Korea alongside them, it means China, which is the most paranoid country in the whole world, apart from, apart from countries we don't know about. They are worried stiff that the Koreans, like any sort of uh, favourite son kick against them. Is what China says going to make any difference to what North Korea does, though, really? No, but it may make a difference. We're back to the same sort of thing with, you know, what Russia says about Syria. It may be that China takes their anxieties into the United Nations Security Council, and that's when you can pile on the more, uh, or the greater, uh, sort of sanctions. But i tell you something, this is the most important thing. This is what Ban Ki-moon, the, uh, the, the UN Secretary General says. He says, it's terrible. Think what uh, the NATO says. They think it's terrible. Obama says it's terrible. Even we, Willie Haig, the... Uh, the uh, <laughs> Never the heard British, him called that before. Oh, he loves it. <laughs> the British Foreign Secretary says it's terrible, it's awful. And what does the leader, Kong Jing-un, say in, in, in North Korea? Two not, fingers to you, Lord. Not very much, no, we, indeed. You know, you, because why? Go to Pakistan, and when we used to shout at Pakistan and says, you dare produce a nuclear weapon. And so Pakistan produced a nuclear weapon. Next thing, we're shaking hands with Pakistan. That's called respect. And as, and as Aidan was saying earlier, the one thing North Korea wants more than anything else is respect. 
Now, six months after Mohamed Morsi was elected as the new Egyptian president in the country's first ever democratic vote, the country is divided over another vote taking place this Saturday, a referendum on Egypt's draft constitution. Uh, Christopher, just explain the purpose of this constitution and the whole process of setting up a new democratic Egypt. Well, uh, OK, Demi first, democracy. If you think about democracy, as we would say in, in, in the Western uh, Hemisphere, democracy says you've got to do two things. You've got to give people a vote and uh, un un uninhibited vote, and you've also got to have an independent judiciary. Well, so far, in Egypt, first time, they got a proper vote. The referendum itself is a vote. Now, that's incomplete as far as we're concerned, but they've only been at it for 22 months, as you say, so that's not so bad at all. In this referendum, it's about the constitution do people, will they have this draft constitution? Can they go ahead with it as a government? Now, the so-called opposition, uh, they're actually saying, no, we must not accept this. Why wouldn't we accept this? Because in that draft um, is an attack on democracy. It means that there's things that could become uh, the introduction of Sharia law. In other words, Islamic law. And that's not what the Egyptians want. There are all sorts of other things, but that's the crucial point. And if the country votes no, what happens next? Um, it's unlikely that they will vote no, but there will be a huge uprising. Tahrir Square is still full, and it's not going to empty after Saturday's vote. This is BFBS. Sit rep. What's it like to have lost your son in the Afghanistan war? Margaret Everson lost her son, 26-year-old Lieutenant Mark Everson, after he was killed by a Taliban bullet in May 2009. Now she wants to share her feelings about him and her experience of his death, so she's written a book about it. I spoke to her and asked her what she set out to achieve. My intention initially was to write, just to write. I'd never written before, and... At the anniversary, the first anniversary of Mark's death, I was in a um, state, really, because all the memories of my awful weekend in Celio came back in detail. And I thought, the only thing I can do is write, write it down and try and get it out of my head because um, I was very distressed. So I started writing um, that day, the first chapter of the book about uh, that weekend in Celio. And that was the weekend where you had to decide that you were going to switch off the life support. That's right. We had two days there, and, and two days for having found out um, that Mark was injured, and then two days in Celio before we switched off the machines. And, of course, they were stored in my mind as in, in concrete, and that came out at the first anniversary, and I started writing as a way of getting some relief from it. Um from then on, I used to write whenever I was upset because I found it huge, hugely um, relieving as, as a process. And finally, I had that sort of a wadge of writings and I showed it, them to a friend and then I, sh I met a literary agent at a book launch and showed them to her and she said, well, if you double it in size and make it from, Mar from your own point of view uh, rather than about Mark, then we could make it into a book. And I decided to do that because it was a lovely uh, record for the family to have. And also by then I was I thought that um, it would be nice for other parents and other families to, to know, um, you know, what happened. I thought it would be good for the public to know what happens when a soldier dies rather than just hearing that a soldier's died and then 
um, turning away, which is what the public does. They they just hear it as a fact that a, a soldier's died, but they don't really know what it involves. In Sandhurst, you've been involved in a well-being conference only a few weeks ago. Yes. What were you trying to do exactly and achieve there? Well, I was invited to speak um, as a psychologist and as a family member of a soldier who died. Um, so I was there not as an expert, but just to comment, really. And, th- and that's what I did. And what kind of message do you want to get across? I mean, well-being is an awfully broad subject, but yes. what, what were they trying to do with the conference? I think they were trying to tackle the problem. There is a, a clear process that helps with trauma, which is talking about it, and there are um, you know, facilities made available to soldiers to do it. A lot of the ordinary soldiers who don't suffer from um, post-traumatic stress disorder but are carrying some of the symptoms and the memories that won't go away um, don't have an opportunity to talk about it. Uh, the, the, the Army is a, an active organisation. They believe in getting on. Uh, the culture is to fight and to be active and to... Uh, in a way, not quite sweep these things under the carpet, but um, it's relatively difficult to talk about it within the army um, situation as it is, although the offer, offer is always there. You know, they can go to talk to the padre or to their um, sergeant major who may have been trim trained, all that sort of thing. But um, they tend not to, I think. And I think they found it easier to talk to me because when they... I was crying, and when I was crying, they could cry as well. And I think that that helped. People have talked about this ticking time bomb about post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's well documented how long it can take for it to present, sometimes more than 10 years later. Do you think there is going to be some sort of palpable um, display of it in the future as a result of the campaign in Afghanistan? I think it's a very nasty war. And that maybe the the soldiers don't have the same opportunities to talk that they've had in the past, in the sense that they, um, in a patrol base, obviously, they sleep in their own spaces and people are picked up if they're upset. But the upset is often often presents much later. And they're, then they're in their own rooms at home and then it's harder for them to understand or to fall back on the idea, as I had to with my own grief, that it would be better if I talked about this. So what can be done? Should there be a more sort of structured way of dealing with people who've been on the front line? I think that that the only thing I'd like to change really is the culture. I think soldiers should um, understand that yes they have to be soldiers and yes they have to fight but if they start having nightmares and horrible memories of what happened then they should turn to someone to talk to um, and that that's the way out. It's not to just pretend it's not happening. Now sometimes they find it very hard to find someone to talk to and uh, I don't think that they would necessarily go to their GP as in fact I did in the end or or go to the Padres as indeed I went to in the end as well um, but they they need to talk to someone be it their own family, their girlfriends, a friend, another soldier. I think that just the, as I said, the, just the very business of laying it on the, uh, out and open is a good thing. What do you think your son Mark would say about the book you wrote about him? 
well, <laughs> he, he, he would probably he would probably be flattered, but he 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 he, he might say, "Mum, you do go on." <laughs> That was Margaret Everson, the author of Death of a Soldier, A Mother's Story. Now, just before we go, do women make better spies than men? Fans of the series Homeland will well be acquainted with the crazed but highly effective CIA agent Carrie Matheson and a film soon to be released about the killing of Osama bin Laden has an apparently true plot line involving the female CIA agent who led the Navy SEALs to the world's most wanted man. Um, Christopher, entertainment aside, is it true that there's a cultural shift at the CIA giving women more prominence? There are more, the more uh, women working in the CIA at the moment and they're working especially in counterintelligence and they're working also in languages. There are more women going into the CIA because of their languages and, and, and they're faster developers of languages as well. Um, so there's that, that sort of element is right. But if you look at the log sheets of the CIA, M- M- MI6, maybe MI5 as well, um, they don't say, not an asterisk, this, this job was done by a woman, <laughs> you know, or this job was done by a man. I mean, the, the name of the... It's, the not, of the, so it's, not, it's not backed up by stats, basically. Well, it, it, <laughs> you, you don't get director CIA saying, hey, listen, nip down to the canteen. Have we got any spare women with nothing to do and we want to send them on a job? Having said that, um, according to this report, a, a director of Israel's Mossad agency, Tamir Pardo, said that women are better than men in certain aspects of intelligence work. Um, for example, suppressing their ego to attain their goal. Do you buy that one? Uh, well, it may be true in, in, in Mossad, but I can't believe so because Mossad <laughs> has got the biggest ego of any intelligence <laughs> organisation. I'll give you a quick thing. I remember a student, a girl, um, she wanted to join MI6, couldn't join MI6 because you had to get a tap on the shoulder, they had to invite you. So she had to join MI5, but her ideas of what would happen how exciting it was going to be, were absolutely pie in the sky. And she didn't get in any, anyway. But it was because the, there was a guy in, in, in the college... Programs like Homeland, basically. No, Spooks. <laughs> Spooks in those days. The, uh, it was one of her early students at, at, at Emmanuel who'd written Spooks. And he used to come back and tell them. And they all wanted to join. You couldn't get a job at Salman Brothers anymore. In banking, it wasn't so good. And that's what they wanted to do. This Great discussion to be, to be continued another time. <laughs> Let's have a look at uh, forward to next week. And you've got news from Moscow, haven't you? Uh, Saturday, Moscow, there's going to be a demo, an opposition to Putin demo, outside, continuing the spies theme, outside Lubyanka, which is the old headquarters of, of the KGB. The FSB is, is now the, is taken over. This is anti-Putin. Putin has said, keep away. He is in trouble. And Putin is actually not sliding. He's not going to disappear. But he's very deliberate in when he says, and he'll be making a speech on Saturday saying, foreigners, stay out of our politics. I think it's quite significant. Putin's back in the news, I think. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors and, of course, to our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week, but from me, Kate Chabo, goodbye for now. BBC Radio 4.